0: Hello Jeroen. Hello Dylan. And once again we're joined by friend of the show Joël Kenville. Thanks so much for coming back Joël. Thanks for inviting me onto the show. So today we are talking about a bit of a hot topic. Should Elm devs care about category theory? Forgive us if we use that term a bit imprecisely but I think that that's what Elm developers often think about um, when they think about this sort of general area that we're going to be touching on. So let's dive into it. So so. What, what do we really want to talk about here? We're, we're kind of talking about some patterns that we use as Elm developers or could use. How would you sort of describe overall this sort of concept of category theory or how it might be useful for an Elm developer?
1: I think there's value in recognizing patterns in our code and when they repeat. Part of that is that we can then use things we know in one context and apply them in
0: another right right so so basically what what we would hope to come away with here is a better understanding of some tools for abstraction that we can use as elm developers and maybe maybe just a a clearer understanding of some abstractions we're already using we're we're probably already familiar with these to a certain extent we just don't have a name for some of them or don't recognize them as a recurring group of of patterns so is that how you think about them as a as a as a group of patterns that you can use to identify common common abstractions
1: uh yes, I think I, I like the term pattern here. In fact, we used it in a previous episode where we talked about one of these what we called universal patterns.
0: yes, yes, and listeners should definitely check out that episode if they haven't heard it or if they need a refresher we We covered a lot of stuff there a lot a lot of it talking about uh, what you might call the applicative pattern. it's episode thirty two if I remember correctly, should actually check that. Yes, episode thirty-two. So I, I've been I've been trying to understand why why is it so hard to wrap our brains around this topic? I think I don't know. I I, I imagine a lot of Elm developers can relate to this. To to a certain extent, we we shy away from using some of this ap- academic language, these these terms in the Elm community, and to a certain extent, that's that makes it feel more accessible for a lot of people. That. They don't need to understand all these terms before they feel like they can jump in and create a web application. But but why is it so hard to wrap our brains around it? And I, I was thinking about, it's almost like these patterns, they don't have semantic ideas to them. They don't have domain ideas. And that's sort of the point, is that they wrap around your semantic ideas. Like I was thinking about it, it's almost like if you were to explain the term organization to somebody who didn't know what an organization was. And, there, and if they were saying, well, what does it do? You're like, well, it could do anything. Like, well, what's its purpose? Its purpose could be anything. <laughs> but there's some sort of set of coherent ideas you could talk about of how do people organize work? Is it, are they self-organizing teams? Are they, is it a single individual? Are, you know, you can talk about these patterns of how people organize. Even if you don't know what they're organizing to do, and in a in a sense, these sort of functional patterns, it's a similar thing. They don't have, they have sort of meta-semantics almost. Do you think that's a fair description?
1: I would agree. These things often, uh, I think, are so abstract, it's hard to describe them outside of their very formal definitions. So anytime we try to make it a little bit more accessible, we end up having to uh, hand wave a little bit and then... What we have in this, an approximation, which works in many, but not all cases.
2: It's something that if you want to explain, you usually have to go with a concrete example right from the start to, to get it across, right? And then you try to generalize, oh, you've got this pattern. It works for lists. Like, this is how it works for lists. And then, oh, you can also apply it to maybe, or you can also apply it to results, right?
1: I think as a teaching method, that is absolutely the way to go. You're going to, it's going to take a while before you can start seeing what the greater pattern is and what is part and not part of the pattern. So, for example, you're looking at and then on maybes and and then on results, and you might think, oh, and then is a pattern for following the happy path. But then you look at and then on a random generator, and like there is not really the concept of a happy path. And so now your approximation has kind of broken. So now you have to find something else that can include the way random does it. And then you have to find a way that includes the way list does it. And every time you learn a different one, you start broadening a little bit that understanding. And I think it's okay to have approximations that are good in certain cases and and not in others, Um, because that's how we build our understanding, how we build mental
2: models. For lists and then would be concat map, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, I feel like result and then result dot and then and list dot concat have do things very differently uh the type signature looks the same but otherwise it, it's that's pretty much this uh the only thing that is uh the same like the, the the laws around it and the type signature but what it does and why it does it are very different so i feel like it's hard to explain like why would you reach for this and it's more like well this is useful function and it has this type signature and then well, result has the same one. It just you don't you just don't use it for the same thing, but it behaves somewhat alike.
1: What happens is there's certain behaviors that are true across all of these, and that's where some of the your intuitions can come across um, really nicely. And you can build other things on top of them, regardless of whether it's on maybe your list because certain things hold true. So a classic one that you'll see is, uh, for example. Flattening a nested maybe, you would do and then identity. Um, that is the thing that is true for any and then function. Uh, if you have a nested list and you want to flatten it, you can do concat map identity. You want to flatten the result and then identity. So that holds true
0: for all of them. Right, that's like a law for that pattern, if, we're, if we were to get into the jargon.
1: Yes, yes. And I think one thing that's interesting to note with these things is that they're like really formal definitions typically are a combination of some base description of, i say maybe it includes a type. I forget if you have to have a type, uh, but typically it's one or two functions. And then what they call laws, the so things that must hold true for that function, regardless of what you pass into it.
0: Yeah. So things like associativity and identity and sort of like laws of logic and mathematics. And these things have their foundations in these more, they're not, just for writing computer programs, they for logic and reasoning and mathematics.
2: I actually have a hard time uh, understanding where, where the, the relationship with mathematics comes from. Because like you've got mathematics, which works with algebra and set theories, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then you've got maybes and, and then. And like <laughs> th- th- there's some connection somewhere that I'm missing. And I don't know where it is or what it is.
1: So There's a whole world of mathematics uh, outside of just like manipulating pure numbers. Uh, so even if you talk about sets, a function is a transformation from one set to another.
2: Right. Uh, so, so from numbers to strings and strings to numbers and for instance. Exactly.
1: And now once you start thinking of transformations between sets, uh, that's where some of these more category style things come in. I want to say, and this is getting to the edges of my knowledge of what real category theory is, that it's sort of a layer of abstraction on top of the idea of uh, sets and functions as transformations between sets. So there are other mathematical, I'm going to call them objects, uh, that can be transformed into each other in a similar with a similar style of relationship that functions and sets have. And category theory is sort of like a, a meta framework for being like, oh you know, I don't know, groups are to something, I'm I'm throwing random terms here, (laughs) to, you know, these things relate to each other in a similar way as functions and sets uh, relate to each other. It's my, like, very fuzzy understanding of what, uh, like, mathematical category theory is. My understanding is also that in the programming world, we've kind of diverged a little bit from that, and that what we tend to call category theory doesn't necessarily map perfectly cleanly onto mathematical category theory.
2: Do you have examples where it doesn't map cleanly? No, because I don't actually
1: understand (laughs) mathematical category theory.
0: (laughs) Uh, Okay, that's that's fair. (laughs) One of the things I wonder about is how much, how much would these things naturally emerge? If you just, if there was no such thing as this sort of history of category theory and all these terms and concepts and things that had been sort of developed over the years, and all you had was the ELM language, and you had those basic building blocks for creating programs, would the same patterns emerge naturally, or or are they somehow tied to the fact that we have all these ideas that we developed before and we try to apply them to this new context? So someone said, let there be ELM, and then... You, you you, invent the future? Yeah, yeah.
1: My guess is that they would still emerge, particularly something like a map. Uh, it's such a common style of operation that someone would write that abstraction because they're tired of writing a case expression to unwrap, do a thing, rewrap.
0: Yep, exactly. That's my uh, suspicion as well. And and if you think about things like, okay, you're... Um, your way of doing control flow is, you know, if expressions and case expressions and, and function calls, basically, you know, you don't have any exception handling and that sort of thing. Well, okay. So then you need some sort of way to do and, and then is going to pretty naturally emerge from those basic ingredients. It seems like the, so. And I think that that gets at, at the conversation today is how can we sort of understand these groups of things together as a pattern rather than just, all right, I do and then and I do that over and over. How can we understand that as the relationship between how you do that with a list and how you do that with maybe and how you do that with a result?
1: I think what Yerun shared earlier uh, about working with each individual type and then as you work with them, you start understanding or seeing the greater pattern. Uh, as the way to, That's the way to learn it
0: hmm hmm
1: And then after that, where it gets interesting is once you've done three or four, you can start thinking when you move to a different domain that has these same functions. Well, I already know how and then works on maybes and lists and JSON decoders. I wonder if it works the same uh, on tasks. And mm. then you, at that point, that's when you see how good your understanding really was. And I've had that sort of magical experience of helping out someone in the Elm Slack. I think this was with the test fuzzers um, for writing um, fuzz tests. And I'd never used the library and someone was asking for help. And I was able to solve their problem, even though I'd never used the library, did not know how fuzzers worked, because I I knew these patterns.
2: Right. I think you compared it to JSON decoders. Mm
1: Mm-hmm right? Uh, Yes, it may have been JSON decoders. It may have been uh, random generators. I forget which one I compared it to in my mind.
0: Right. I mean, it's a pretty neat mapping from a a test fuzzer in Elm to a random generator because it's, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's the same thing under the hood. I think you can just pass in a random generator, right? But the same overall pattern applies, of course. Yeah. So I've been, I've been thinking about like, is this read a couple of explanations of like, like there was one sort of explain it like I'm five type post that I found kind of interesting. But one of the things it was talking about was it, it was saying it's a messy world out there. And what if we wanted to create a sort of nice, happy place where we could not think about that messiness, where we could just think about simpler things and then shield ourselves from that messiness in that space. And so it was saying like, you know, if you have if you have a result or like a JSON decoder, there are all these like messy things that are happening with the outside world in a in a JSON decoder. All these ways that it could fail, and whether it's failed and that all the state of whether um, it's gone through and tried to do something that wasn't available, that's very messy, and it's stressful to think about all those things. What if we could just forget about that and happily just you know, give it a function for transforming our data and call map, call json.decode.map and pass in a plain old function that takes a value and pretends that everything is nice and happy and shields away that complexity of the ugly world outside. <laughs> so I don't know, I, that, that sort of clicked with me. That felt like a pretty good way to describe, like, why do these patterns exist? Why are they useful?
1: I think this goes into what I was mentioning earlier about approximations, and that that sort of picture assumes that the you're talking about situations where uh, there are potential failures.
0: Right, right.
1: So maybe result, to a certain extent, even JSON decoder or task. That's not really the, the what's happening with, say, a random generator, where mapping is not trying to ignore failures. It, it kind of does something different.
0: Right. I sort of got into the specifics of failure with JSON de- decode, but the... Um the sort of explanation was talking more about messiness as a general concept. And he was saying that like that messiness means maybe the thing exists, maybe it doesn't. Or that messiness could be you will have this thing in the future, but you don't have it now. Or the messiness could be it depends on something from the outside world. And that sort of seems like, okay, there is something in common there that I don't want to think about some sort of messiness, whether it's like uncertainty or happening in the future, or there's something connecting all of those things, even though semantically, there are a bunch of different things, results and, and presence or absence, but somehow it's abstracting some sort of messiness of the world and letting you deal with it in a blissfully ignorant way.
1: I think what you're referring to as messiness here is what in slightly more formal context, people will refer to as context. So it's, They'll often refer to a parameterized type like maybe or random generator as context wrapped around a a value, and that context might be the fact that it's present or not. It might be the fact that it's a future value that you may or may not have. All sorts of things like that. That's very kind of hand wavy, and I think context is such a broad word that it's not always useful to use. But yeah, it's that thing like if you've got a your type a. Oftentimes, your type is adding some kind of extra context about the A.
0: Right. And naturally, if, if you're dealing with these things, I mean, in a way, if you're dealing with them in a m- more declarative way, if you're, if you're dealing with things in, in an imperative way, then you just go and, and do things. And you don't necessarily need these kinds of abstractions in the same way. The, the, the abstractions that emerge look different, I think. But if you're dealing with things in a declarative way, essentially what you've got with a lot of these things that can be transformed in these ways is sometimes you can't directly apply a transformation you know perhaps with something like maybe you could under the hood because it's it's just a wrapped data type but with something like a random generator or a json decode value or you know something like elm ui with context that's able to read things from the outside world that sort of represents a future value tasks things like that You can't just map the thing because it doesn't necessarily just exist for you to interact with it directly right away. So what you would have to end up doing if you were dealing with these things without these abstractions is you would have to basically unwrap a function and rewrap the function over and over all over the place. So it really does feel like on a desert island, a lot of these same patterns would emerge if you were working with these basic tools and you wanted to do things in a declarative style.
1: I think you've done an episode on the concept of combinators,
0: right? We briefly touched on combinators when we had you on last, but we haven't done a full episode on specifically that topic.
1: Okay. Well, you've written an article about combinators. Yes, I, I have. Yes. So I think in a sense, many of these category theory-ish things could be described as universal combinators. I'm hand-waving a little bit uh, because there's this is not quite true, but... Uh, and then and map and other functions like this, I guess they're not always combining two values, but they're sort of in that world and they're sort of common utilities that end up being useful on many different data types. Also going back to something you'd mentioned earlier about different laws and how they're often like very kind of mathematical logical sounding things. A lot of them have sort of very practical implications even though when you read the law, it sounds like reading a math theorem. Uh, So for example, the map function has a law that says that mapping the identity function should equal the same thing as calling the identity function. Basically, mapping identity does not change anything. And a really interesting implication of that is that uh, your map function can change uh, items inside your type, but it cannot modify the general structure of your what you've been calling the context. So for example, a list, you cannot add or remove items from the list uh, using map. If you do, you've violated the law because otherwise you're mapping identity, it shouldn't change anything. But if you've dropped items from the list, that, that thing would be violated.
2: You, you can also not reverse the list if you want it to be a map because otherwise it's not an identity function. Yes, that's right. So a map makes sure that the list Uh, or whatever collection stays in the same order, regardless of whether you call it with an identity or not. Right,
1: and similarly, uh, you can't change a just to a nothing as part of a map
2: Mm -hmm. or
1: okay into an error or anything like that. Uh, You can only modify the wrapped value, which is a really interesting thing that comes out of that. And if you had implemented as a test suite or a, a fuzz test, uh, you would find that if your implementation does modify the overall structure, your fuzz test will start failing.
2: Yeah. When you do implement these uh, kinds of functions on on, your, on a type that you made, do you write fuzz tests or do you write anything to make sure that those laws are applied and true?
1: I like to write fuzz tests that follow the laws. Um, that's a good way to find out that you' you've implemented according, you've implemented the function according to spec.
2: Because there's, there's nothing at least in Elm saying that oh th- this type has a map function there's nothing saying that this respects the laws of the map function correct right? and I, w- I wonder like is it useful to have this to call it like map if you don't know whether the, the law is applied or not like if you, like for instance someone could have a, a map uh, on a list like structure but that reverses the list, because of some bug like would you then still call it a map would you call it something else do you just report a bug
1: i think i would probably report a bug on that assuming this is unintentional on the part of the the library uh maintainer if it is intentional then i might recommend that they name it something else because this sort of violates what people expect of a map function
2: yeah even though there's nothing saying hey this is a this is a map function from the functor Right uh, name. Sorry for dropping the F word. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if we've been avoiding saying these words for now, but there you go. Now, now we can say them if we feel like it, or, or avoid them if we want to. But yeah.
1: And to, to clarify, uh, functor is the, the fancy you know, quote-unquote category theory term for uh, a, a type where we've implemented a map function that fulfills, there's I think two or three laws, one of which is the one we mentioned about identity.
2: Yeah, I think the other one is commutativity, but yeah. Yeah, which is a really fun one that I
1: actually take advantage of uh, pretty frequently. The idea that instead of, if I have two functions I want to map, uh, let's say I have a list of, um, I don't know, a list of integers and I want to double them and then I want to uh, add one instead of mapping once through the list to double them and then mapping a second time to add one, I can map once and double and add one at the same time. Yeah, And that's actually a refactor that I do pretty frequently in my own code and that some fancy compilers can actually do automatically for you as a performance optimization.
2: Uh, I tried working on that with LMA Optimize Level 2. I, oh, actually nice. don't, I actually don't remember where I, where I got it. I probably have some, a branch somewhere. So it's clearly something that could be done, but the issue is then like what, uh, are we sure that this uh, map function is trying to respect those rules or not, which we know for the core functions, but not for the rest. So, yeah.
1: For the most part, the community has a good intuition of how they should work.
2: Yeah,
0: I agree.
1: And if they don't, you probably get some an issue or a PR on your on your repo.
0: Yeah, I, I would imagine that the, the fact that ELM is a pure functional language, would eliminate a lot of the ways that things would uh, not follow these laws, too. Like, I I feel like it would be pretty easy to not follow a law if you could accidentally throw an exception or depend on some outside state.
1: I feel like you could, you can easily, like, there's there's a whole reason we have these laws in the functional world. Like, they're all functional things, like, these things must be commutative, or the identity function must apply in this way. So they're not about not throwing errors or mutating state. It's just when you build your pure function here, make sure that it follows some very specific criteria.
0: Right. But but wouldn't, I mean, if you throw an error, then it's definitely not. I...
1: That kind of breaks, I think, other parts of functional programming, not for right. much the laws.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like when you play Monopoly and you tell your child, hey, if, if you roll a six uh, twice, then you need to go to prison. And then the kid just throws a table. <laughs> right, like, like,
0: right. Who, who cares at this point?
1: <laughs> right.
0: That's a good good analogy.
1: So one really interesting thing that comes out of uh, this like very broad definition of like, here's some laws and a few functions that must follow those laws, is that for any given type, there may be more than one valid implementation that follows the laws and the signatures and all this stuff. So there is no, not necessarily a single... Uh, For example, applicative uh, implementation for lists.
2: Applicative being like map two, right?
1: Yes, Uh, map two. So in Elm, when we map two uh, with two lists, we're effectively zipping them together. But it's also possible to do a map two in a way that's doing a Cartesian product. So all the possible combinations from the two lists. Mm -hmm. And that's what Haskell's map two does. And both of these are completely valid. In fact, uh, Martin uh, Janicek built a package uh, that has a list.zip and list.cartesian to showcase the fact that both of these are different ways of having map2 that work uh, in different contexts. You know.
2: Yeah, and the proof for that is that they respect th- those laws and that they have that special type and sig- type signature, right? Yes. Th- those are the only cr- criteria the name doesn't necessarily uh, need to match, maybe?
1: In Elm, no, the name doesn't have to match. Yeah, no,
2: because there's no concept of functors or anything. Right.
1: Uh, In Martin's package, what he's done is just created two modules that expose functions that operate on the same data type. That way he can reuse the name in a different namespace. So you've got... uh, List.cartesian.map2 and list.zip.map2.
2: Okay. Gotcha. I, I thought he had done like a map Cartesian or map.
1: Ah, uh, uh, yeah. Zip. Yeah. No, in this case, he just used the namespace and used the same name. And it, they both act on the same core list type. So it's hmm. not like each of them have a, there's not the concept of a Cartesian yeah. list and a zip list. Gotcha. This also happens a lot for one of the uh, simpler patterns called monoid which is built around this idea of like combining items. Uh, so I think what you need is you need a some sort of combining function that can combine two values of a type, and then you need a sort of empty item that when you combine it with something else is equivalent to identity. And for example, looking at numbers, uh, you can add two numbers together. That's a form of combining. And if you add zero, you don't change your number. And so addition for numbers is a monoid, but it is not the only one because you can do the same thing with multiplication, except in this case, your sort of base element that when multiplied doesn't change is not zero, it is one because any number multiplied by one is itself. So, and I I actually like monoid as a sort of example in that we often tend to think of these sort of categories as inherent to the type But it's not really about the type itself. It's like a thing you can layer on. And so what you need is like sort of several different component pieces that all come together. And if they're all present, then you can talk about the collection as being this this category, in this case, monoid. So you can say if you have numbers and zero and multiplication, now you have a monoid, but you need all three of those. Numbers by themselves are not inherently Monoids. That's not a thing about the type,
2: right? Like, like you could have um, some special kind of numbers uh, that you cannot add. Right.
1: In fact, you can define uh, a number type. Yeah. And just not implement the addition function.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And then it wouldn't it wouldn't be a monoid.
1: Exactly. The interesting thing is that someone can provide a type in a package and not write some of these functions, and so it is not a functor or a monad or any of these other things. But then I pull down this package and in my application, I write one of these functions to act on this third-party type and all of a sudden, within the context of my code, it is a functor because now we have all the pieces.
2: That's a great point. If you have the building blocks to to implement that function, obviously. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, for example, I could create a maybe type and publish it without the map function on it. And then you could Decide well. I need to map over it. I'm going to write a map function for your maybe type. Obviously. And now it's within the context of your code. My maybe is a functor, or the mm. it is yeah the the combination there is. I sometimes find it, it is an easy approximation to talk about uh, these things as adjectives rather than nouns. So I can say this type is monadic, not this type is a monad because it has these functions. So this is like an attribute of it rather than being like an mm. inherent quality.
2: Yeah, it's not like you create a type and you say, okay, this needs to be monadic, this needs to be blah, blah, blah. It's you add the function and therefore it is monadic. Right. It, therefore right. it is a monad.
1: I think you can talk about it in a noun sense to say, oh, yeah. I have the maybe monad. But at that point, you're not talking about maybe the type. You're talking about the sort of the fact that I have a type and some functions and they all follow the the laws. And I think that gets confusing to people when you talk about the X pattern.
0: So there's an interesting example that when, when I realized this, it sort of hurt my brain a little bit, which is that um, the Elm GraphQL selection set is inherently not monadic because it represents, a, a selection set represents both the request for saying I would like this data and the decoding to say, okay, I'm gonna turn this into an Elm type from the server. But because of that, you can't and then that. Uh, you can't you can't say, get this user's role, and then make a follow-up selection set. Because inherently, well, I mean I guess I guess that would represent multiple requests to the server. Right. But inherently a selection set represents a single request to the server. So it is inherently not monadic, not just because it's not exposed, but that operation doesn't really fit in that uh, abstraction.
1: Particularly because in the, the rules that you've set up for what a selection set does, you don't want multiple requests to be done. Exactly. Everything has to be done within a single request. Yes. And by the monad laws, and and then would imply a second request, which is a thing you don't want to do.
0: Exactly, exactly. So the, the semantics that it would imply for the outside world would not fit into the, the desired semantics for, for the library's goal to not, the whole point is you don't want to make repeat requests to the server, you want to make a single request to say exactly what you need. Yeah. And
2: just to clarify, that is not an issue, right?
0: No, it's uh, not. It's not like
2: there, there is no, and then and therefore there's a problem with your uh,
0: library, Dylan. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's just a constraint, and it's just one building block that you can't use. And sometimes it is quite convenient. Like, I don't know when I, when I think about um, when I think about these patterns in sort of layman terms, I think about I'd really like to have this concrete data, not this wrapped data thing. I want give me the actual data you've got, and then let me continue on and. Um, do something with it, or, I mean, of course, as we've discussed, these um, analogies fall apart because sometimes it's continuing, sometimes it's dealing with presence or absence, sometimes it's dealing with failure or success. But you know, <laughs> timey wimey, you get the idea, something along those lines. But you can't do that. You can't say I'd like to take this thing and then and then I'd like to perform this check and fail if if I don't have this thing. You just can't do that. You have to find other ways to solve it. So like, it it just changes the way that you approach solving certain problems.
1: I think there's a really interesting thing here that goes back to the why is it useful for Elm programmers to learn these concepts? And we can kind of get it just by the signature, but given the fact that someone might know the definition of what and then does uh, in general, or familiar with its signature, and that they know that in your library, a selection set represents both a request and parsed data. With those two facts, I can tell you that and then is going to involve multiple requests. But uh, someone who's... Uh, that's something that you know, I think came out in the conversation we were t- saying earlier, but that might not be obvious. You'd have to like dig through if this was named something else. But because it's named and then, and you know how and then works then you can quickly sort of apply it to the domain that it's in and quickly pick up some information.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. So, so I feel like uh, all those functions are mostly there for familiarity, right? Uh, if you see a map function, you expect it to behave this way. You expect it to follow those lots as we, uh, that we mentioned. And I feel like that that's pretty much the only reason to have those, for familiarity. At least in Elm.
1: Well, they're, they're just common operations that you end up doing, common transformations that we end up doing on data.
2: But the, uh, the reason why you would name them that way or that you would have the arguments in that order. Yes. But yeah, obviously, like if, you want, if you have a selection set which contains some data, then map makes sense. Whether you call it that way or ma- whether you make it um, follow those laws or not is a different uh, consideration. But I think it makes sense to have them follow those laws and have that name because it makes it very familiar to people who know list.map, who know maybe.map, etc. So I feel like it's all about familiarity and just making it easier to to grok what a piece of code does based on what your knowledge of other pieces of function uh, do.
1: I would say that's the general value of the concept of patterns.
2: Yeah. I guess.
1: (laughs) And even like in the object-oriented world, right? The idea of design patterns of standardized ways of solving common problems. It's much easier for me to look at some code and be like, oh, that's a decorator rather than being like, huh, okay. So there's an object that's wrapping another object and there seems to be some kind of delegation happening here. And instead of like really digging into the implementation, I can look at it and recognize the pattern. And then immediately I, I know it's one of those big building blocks that I've seen in 50 other contexts.
0: So so what about when Elm diverges like list.concatmap it's not called list.andthen but it has the same signature and and you know vice versa with things that use andthen uh, you know so uh, it it seems like in many cases Elm opts for um using more domain language than category theory language but there are trade offs there i mean like th- you could imagine a world where we just say Let's be consistent with this naming. If it follows these laws, let's pick a, a term for it that we're going to use in the Elm community. And let's stick with that in all of the core libraries, at least. So let's call it then, or let's use concat map elsewhere. Whatever it is, let's stick with it. But it does get difficult to sort of, because again, the semantics can feel so different, even if the pattern is the same.
1: Yes. I think, in fact, lists are really tricky because... It's often where you're first introduced to a lot of these things, uh, particularly something like map. And if you know your only example that you've seen is list map, you're going to think map is about iteration and list traversal. And so when you see maybe map uh, JSON to code map and it's not about traversing a list, you get really confused, or at least I did.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially coming from JavaScript where the only map function that I know is on arrays, so collections.
1: Yes. Um. Although, uh, fun fact, the uh, promise then method is effectively map on a promise.
2: But it's also an end then.
1: (laughs) Yes, it is also end then.
2: Right. Uh (laughs) (laughs) So is
0: it, what kind of... uh... It's It's monadish. But the... Uh, the exception part isn't really well behaved the errors don't really map cleanly i don't know if that breaks any monad it ones kind of
1: no. does yes as an as an approximation you can say that promise then is like a it's similar to a monad it's similar to a functor uh, or similar to map similar to and then
0: cuz you can do promise.resolve to, to get just the unit value and you can do then on the promise to Where it
1: gets interesting, if you compare it to, say, Elm's task, which is very similar to JavaScript's promise, where Elm task has two very separate functions for map and, and then, if you're looking at some code and you see that it applies a task map, you know that, let's assume these tasks are just HTTP requests, you know it's only making one request and then applying a transformation to the result of that request. Map cannot make a second request because of the functor laws.
2: But... Can you clarify why?
1: Because if you made a second request, it would end up... Let's see. I think if you made a second request, you would end up with like a doubly nested uh, task.
2: Yeah, so you would have a task or a task.
1: Right. Which mm-hmm. is actually why uh, some languages, instead of calling it and then, we'll call it flat map. Because it's do map but with another task. And then you've got this nested thing and you have to flatten it down. And so because of the way the the signatures and the the laws work out, when you see a map, you know it's a, a sort of a local operation, it's a safe thing, as opposed to if you see an and then, you know, okay, it's doing some logic potentially and then making another request. Whereas if you see a chain of thens in JavaScript, you don't know, did we make one request and then just do a bunch of local transformations or did we do 10 requests? And now we get back to another of the functor laws, which is, uh, I think what Yerun, you were mentioning earlier uh, that you were trying to do with the Elm optimized level two, where all of those, like a chain of maps can be like flattened down. Uh, And what you can do is all those functions that were in each of the maps, just pull them out into a separate named function. So in Elm, if I see task and then just task map, task map, task map, like five of these, I can just look at all those five functions, create my own named function, pull all of that out and say there is one transformation that gets applied uh, at the end of my request. In JavaScript, I can't know to do that because if some of them are making extra requests, that's not a, just a pure transformation. So then I'd have to say, okay, well, these two can be pulled out, but then I need another, I actually need a then to make that second request and then some more transformations. Uh, so you have to really check each item at a time.
2: Yeah. So you could, uh, with a promise, if uh, it didn't behave as an end then, if it only behaved as a map, then you could potentially, right?
1: Yes. If you saw, if it only behaved as a map and you saw a chain of thens, you could reduce it down to a single then and then just pull out all of those extra things into one function. But it's not safe to do that if you are potentially making more requests.
0: Yeah. And I, I guess, I mean, naturally you would reach for the simplest tool you could uh, in a lot of cases and and try to use map where possible. Kind of like, I mean, um Uran and I often come back to to Richard's scaling LMAPs talk, where the one of the main takeaways is if a function doesn't need more data, give it less data. If a function doesn't need to pass out more data for the for the calling code, then don't return as much data. Just constrain things more so that you can more easily reason about What does this code depend on and what can this code do? And that same principle, I think, applies from from what you're saying here. If you you don't need and then, if you can do it with a map, that's less cognitive complexity for you to hold in your head when you're looking at the code or when you're debugging and trying to find where an issue is coming from.
1: Yes. Uh, And in fact, I've often seen uh, people use and then when they only need a map. And the classic thing that you'll see them do is and then some pure function then like, adding an explicit wrapper, right? I want to say, is there an Elm review rule for that case? No,
2: but it could, definitely could, yeah.
1: So like a classic case would be something like maybe and then some pure function and then just wrap the result in just.
0: Mm -hmm. But that's
1: basically just saying wrap it in just and then unwrap it because and then is, uh, you can think of it as a flat map. And so it's just gonna apply map but you wrap it in just so it's going to flatten it back down and you've done extra work for nothing.
2: I might have something similar to that in Elm Review Simplify. Okay. And if not, someone could create an issue, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or a pull request?
2: Well, yeah, oh, or pull request uh, while well, listening to this episode <laughs> because our audits, uh, our listeners are very quick. <laughs> But I guess to come back
1: to the sort of original question that we were asking, right? Should Elm Devs care about category theory or why should we care about it? One thing that really helps is to, because you can recognize some of these larger building blocks and patterns, you can immediately gain some much deeper insights into how the program works and what it does or doesn't do just by looking at some of these function names.
0: Right. Yeah. That's a great takeaway.
2: I I feel like in the Elm Slack, I've seen some conversations, which I will not be able to remember, so I can't give it an example where someone asked like is it possible to have a function that does this or th- does that with this type and people say well no that is not possible because you're missing some constraints on your type or on your f- functions or it is possible and here is the type signature that you will see in other, other places so i feel like Uh, Some people are able to recognize when something is possible, when something is not possible very quickly, thanks to this. Uh, I'm I'm thinking like, I I don't know if I'm pulling this out of uh, thin air, but like contravariance could be one example, maybe. (laughs) I don't even know where that one is. But uh, yeah, where where you have like uh, B to A as a function, and then you can construct something... I'm going to stop here because I'm (laughs) swimming.
1: There's definitely cases where um, you can use it to say, well, here are standard solutions to a particular problem that follows one of these patterns, or sometimes even built on top of these patterns. So you have a list of maybes, and you want to accumulate them into a single maybe with a list of values. That is a thing that is a solved problem for actually genericize from pretty much any types as long as they implement map2. So you know as long as your type is applicative, then you can do this kind of sequencing of of values together or combining. Right. Different LN packages use the name sequence or combine for this kind of operation.
0: So this might be a big ask, Joelle, but can you try to... Can you try to break down a few of these patterns like like you just did with this sort of idea of like, okay, when you see map two, you know you can combine things. What are some other patterns and some other things that you know you can do when you have those patterns?
1: One that I like, and again, this is an approximation, it's not always true, but I typically think of uh, monads as being uh, serial or sequential and applicatives as being parallel so if you're doing a Map2 or a Map3 or a Map4, the important thing is that all of the things you're combining together are all independent of each other. So in theory, if you're doing a Map4 four with four different HTTP requests, uh, those could be executed in parallel. Uh, Elm does does not for the moment. That's an implementation detail. Uh, they've chosen to do it in, in sequence. Uh, but in theory, they are independent and can be executed in parallel in a way that doing a bunch of and thens for make one request and then make another request and then make another request. They must be sequential because you can't make the second request until the first request resolves because you need data from the first request in order to even construct the second one. So there's like an inherent dependency chain in and thens that you don't have with uh, map two or map three. Now there's a little bit of fuzziness there in that some that's only true with regards to the type variable that you're working with, uh, so for example, parsers, they're all independent of each other for the thing that they're parsing. So the output of a, one parser won't impact the value of the second parser, but they're all operating sequentially on the underlying string. And so mm-hmm. there is a sort mm-hmm. of inherent sequen- sequentiality to right. them, but they are independent of each other. So that serial versus parallel model falls apart in some cases. but for many or most of the uh, and thens and map twos that I've experienced, uh, it's a, a useful distinction to keep in mind.
0: Yeah. I mean, at the very least, you know, with and then, just based on the type signature, you know, you're going to be able to take the concrete value and you're going to be able to have that and then give something else back. That's like what the signature says. So if it is something where um, is performing operations, you know, it's going to need to be sequential because you actually have a resolved value at that point. But the naming does get interesting there, right? Because the the word then does imply time, and and you know maybe with a list we're not dealing with time, and so maybe we call it concat map, and it it gets a little fuzzy, doesn't it?
1: Right, right, and even something like uh, maybe, right? You're not
0: dealing mm-hmm. with a uh,
1: something that's in the future. Right. There is an implied sort of fact that the second maybe is going to be resolved after the first one because there is that order that's there. Uh, so maybe then kind of makes sense there.
0: Right. But the the general thing you're doing is you're taking a, a somehow resolved or concrete or present value or whatever that, that fuzzy thing represents and you're able to return a new one of those with M then. So okay, cool. So that's sort of this... When you have a a monad, you have and then. That's what you can do. What are some of these other patterns?
1: Um, So we talked a little bit about monoid earlier. The idea of we have some combining function and we have sort of a base case that always does nothing when combined with another value.
2: Is there a usual name for the combining function? Do you know?
1: Uh, What is it? The, uh, oh, I forget what it is. Uh, The... The base case is sometimes called mempty in, in Haskell, and they have a name for the other one. I don't know if those are standard names or if that's just the Haskell names for it, but what's interesting about this is that, it may have actually kind of set off a, a light bulb in your mind, the idea of a combining function in a base case, more or less what folding does. And so if you have a monoid, then you can inherently fold collections of that uh, or lists of that type using that monoid. So most of the classical sort of fold function examples will show like summing a list is effectively just applying that monoid to things. Uh, but you can also multiply things. Something like asking are all values in a list true according to this predicate or are any of them true? Now you're effectively folding the Boolean operator or, or the Boolean operator and. And on Booleans, and is a combining function. And anding a value uh, with false returns, uh, sorry, anding a value with true returns whatever your value was. Uh, So anding values is a monoid. And same thing with or. Oring a value with true returns self. And or is a way to combine two Booleans.
0: Oring a value with false. Returns self. Scoring yes, a yes. value with true returns true. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah, that's, I got it reversed.
0: Right, right. Yeah, no, that's. You had a 50% chance.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I got it wrong with both.
0: <laughs> you were very unlucky. So, like, would a set be another example of that? You can have an empty set and you can union a set. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you, you can union, union a set. with that. You, you
2: cannot insert an empty element, but you can union two sets. Right. So
1: you could form a monoid for sets with union as your combining function and empty set as your, I guess, identity value. You could. I'm not sure for some of the other set operations if intersection works or not.
0: I mean, I, I think effectively you can you can think of um, union like or an and intersection like and.
1: Yes. So it's probably possible. Um, yeah. Uh, i have to think about that. Uh, where this is really interesting is that functions are themselves monoids. Because Ooh, you can combine awesome. two functions with function composition.
2: Right. And, and you, you can, can combine them with identity.
1: Yes. And I've actually used this uh on, in fact, this is not even like a functional programming thing. This is a Ruby project. And I had to do uh, this like complex uh, search form with a bunch of search parameters. And the way I'd often solve this in Ruby was just like a bunch of like if-else statements, like if this parameter is there, try to filter your results through this way. But then like all the combinations get really weird uh, and it gets really messy. So instead what I ended up doing was creating a bunch of query objects, which are, you can think of them almost like functions, but they operate on the database, and made them composable. And then based on the parameters in the URL, I would just construct a bunch of these and then fold through them to combine them all together, effectively just to compose them with the empty query as my base uh, value. That's how I built up my, my search. At the time, I didn't know about monoids. I didn't really know that much about folding even. It just kind of worked out. But years later, when I learned about monoids, I was like, oh, that like really cool search thing I did in a Rails project once. That was monoids plus folding. Uh, it's worth noting that folding doesn't always have to be on a monoid. I think that's a common misconception. You can fold things that are not monoids because there are some operations that don't follow the monoid laws where your base case isn't, won't necessarily be identity and so folding is a broader set of things, but monoids are always foldable.
2: Yeah. So uh, I'm th- currently thinking uh, that if you provide a functor, so if you provide a map function and you, it is a monoid, would you say it it is monoidal? Monoid.
1: Sure. Yeah. We can say <laughs>
2: monoidal. <laughs> yeah. So if it is a mo- monoid and it has a map function, so it's functorial. Then you can implement like map reduce strategies, right?
1: Oh, that's interesting.
2: And now I'm re- now I'm realizing that uh, in Elm Review, when uh, I ask authors to to create the rule, uh, I ask them to provide something that actually looks like dif- give me a initial value, so kind of a neutral value, ish, yeah, for the context. Yeah, for the context, mm-hmm. the project context. Mm-hmm. And I also ask them to fold them, uh, a way to fold them. And internally, then I do like MapReduce to combine these together. So multiple project contexts into one project context, which allows me to do pretty nifty things under the hood.
1: So I think, this was maybe a little loose with the, the terminology here, when I'm talking about that monoids can be f- folded, um, it's not the monoid itself that can be folded, it's a collection of them. So, numbers are not foldable, but a list of numbers is foldable.
2: Yeah, two numbers are foldable together into one.
1: Well, two numbers can be combined monoidally with addition. A list of numbers can be folded using the addition monoid or folded with the multiplication monoid or however you want, whichever one you want
0: to use. Right, given that you have an operation that allows you to combine them, you can fold them.
1: But given that you have a monoid for some values, a list of those values can be folded. So to your, your example earlier, the, it's your collection, your list that's uh, a functor and the items in the list that are monoids. And then you can do your map reduce. Yeah. This gets really powerful once you start noticing some of these pieces. And sometimes you notice like, Oh, my type could be made or you, this is an operation that would be really nice if these things were monoids, but they're not. But also I know that they could be if I implemented one function. Mm -hmm. And so it's like you implement one function, then everything else falls into place and you can write a really nice program.
0: Right. That is sort of the beauty of patterns, isn't it? Is you don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's sort of like, this is going to pop up again and and again, and I'm going to have to think really hard. How am I going to solve this problem? And then I'm going to come up with the same solution. If only I sort of understood that pattern better. So um, that is something I would like to strive towards to to be a little more versed in these patterns so that I can sort of pull them out as needed more more easily and, and add them to APIs as needed.
1: And sometimes you already have like all the machinery in place and all you're missing is that one cog. But if you don't know that it's that one cog you're missing, you're going to rebuild the whole machine.
2: Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Instead of being like, oh, I just need to implement this one little function and then everything else is just going to work.
0: Right, yeah, I wonder, like you know, I mean, when I built Elm GraphQL, I was very new to all all these things. in fact, like I literally read an article, like I found an article explaining what a phantom type was, I'm like, that's what I need, mm. and that day, added that as I was like exploring building this API, but yeah, it took me like it would have been nice to know that, hey, having the ability to just have. An empty thing that, when combined with anything else, is itself. That would be cool. And then you have selection set dot empty, and you can. Uh, so I, I I suppose that would be a monoid because you can um, take a selection, an empty selection set, and combine it with another thing. You could fold over that. That's useful knowledge. <laughs> so, what is your take on the uh, names? So,
2: a lot there's a lot of discussion around this. So, if something has an and then do you call it and thenable or do you call it a monad or how would you teach it around names
1: oh that's a really hard question because i think it's it is useful to have a name for things that have and then i think that having a name like monad is not useful for beginners people who are learning uh, and in fact, even talking about it in terms of some larger pattern is not useful for beginners. Because it I didn't grasp
2: it in their head yet? And because now you're it's... trying to
1: see like, wh- what are the things in common? What are the, the patterns? And it's just so abstract that, you know, you tell them, oh, it's just an and then function that follows these laws. And it's like, well, that's too simple. What does it actually mean? And then you get stuck in all these like really high level things that just kind of make you spin in circles as opposed to just being like, oh, here's how I combine maybes, here's how I combine results, and then over time, building up an intuition for what it works. Eventually, you're going to want a name for all of these things. And either just to recognize the pattern, like put a name on a pattern you've seen sort of emerge, but also to having conversations with other people or with yourself uh, to say, oh, this thing here, if I make it and then all of a sudden, a bunch of other pieces fall into place or you're doing review for someone and you're saying, you're doing a lot of work here and it looks like you're chaining things in a monadic sort of way. Uh, And I've used this uh, with people who know what the term means in non-functional programming contexts because it is a very useful term.
2: Right. I guess there's also just the fact that if you want to know more about the pattern, if you want to research more, then Googling and then It's not gonna give you much, but Googling monads will give you a lot of resources.
1: Yes, unfortunately, most of those are not going to be helpful.
2: (laughs) That's a different thing. Yes, yes.
1: Uh, I think also what's sometimes tricky with these things is that a lot of the literature around these terms is written in a very kind of formal language. Like it's written almost by academics for academics. I remember uh, I gave a talk last fall on folding and a particular sort of style of folding, uh, which I didn't mention in the talk, but it's called a uh, catamorphism. And anything that I read on folding and catamorphisms got really deep. Even the ones that are claiming to be like written for programmers in an accessible way. And you get a few paragraphs in and we're talking about how F-algebras compose and arrows. I'm just completely lost. So... Sometimes when you dig in on the terms, the, most of the material that's out there is not written for people like us who are trying to write programs in the real world. And I wish there were more tutorials out there that uh, try to give more of a practical introduction to some of these concepts.
2: Yeah. And I, I feel like you've written a few.
1: I've, I've tried. You know, the, the talk I gave about folding was exactly that. It was trying to yeah. say, let's take these concepts and make them accessible to people and, you know, not worry too much about the formal definition of what a catamorphism is, but instead, how is it useful? You know, my example was working with trees uh, and particularly uh, inverting a binary tree on a whiteboard in one line of Elm. That was my my selling point.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely link to that talk. Yeah, it, it is. it would be so nice to just have it written in plain English in one place. Like here are all these kind of common patterns. Here's what they look like in Elm. Here's Here are the kinds of problems you can solve with them. But this conversation has definitely been illuminating. So thank you so much for coming on to illuminate these things for us and, and dive in.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thanks for bringing me on.
2: Uh, are there any concept that you would recommend people learn first? And do you have any resources? Because he said it, it's very hard to find resources. So if if you have good uh, links, that would be useful.
1: I'm a big fan of just digging into uh, Maybe. I think it's a great place to learn, particularly because Maybe uh, exposes its constructors. So you can manually unwrap it and manipulate it and sort of see how it works under the hood. An exercise I've done with people before is actually have them implement their own uh, map and and then on a maybe to see how that works. I also have uh, an article called The Mechanics of Maybe that sort of looks at it less from a patterns perspective and more from a, here, you're new to maybe, here's some common situations that you run into, you would write a case expression like this, and because it's such a common situation, the library provides a helper for you. Which end up being things like map and and then, but and uh, building an intuition even for just the difference between map and and then, I think you touched on it a little bit, Dylan, uh, the idea that map only sort of transforms the value inside, uh, does not produce a new maybe, whereas and then does, and sort of what the implications of that
0: can be. Right. It is, um, I really like this idea of using maybe as an exercise to let's build these up from scratch One thing that's a little bit elusive is maybe doesn't have a succeed function. I mean, it it does. It's just not called that. And it's not a standard function. It's a constructor function. It's just. And so you have to really squint your eyes to see those patterns there.
1: Yeah. And the reason you bring it up is because the definition, the strict definition for what a monad is requires an and then function and some form of constructor. Right. Um, We've sort of... (laughs) Not mention that (laughs) out loud on the episode, but that's what the the formal definition says. And for some types that don't expose the internals of the type, for example, task or JSON to code, they will often expose a succeed function, which is a constructor.
0: Right, exactly.
1: Yeah, so Dylan, I'm curious if you used any of these uh, patterns and concepts when you were designing uh, the Elm GraphQL library.
0: You know, I I wish I even knew what these things were back then. They were much fuzzier in my mind at the time like just conceptually in category theory and those things, but even just the patterns themselves were less clear in my mind. So I I had no idea about these things. And the original Elm graphQL, which was called graphQLm, it had um it it had these core concepts of like, you know, making it safe to Query for your GraphQL data and having phantom types to protect that you're querying for the right in the right context in these things, but it really didn't have any of these properties of that we've been talking about of monoids and functors and all these things. It was like so a selection. There was a selection set and there was a field, and those were two different concepts.
1: Did you have that uh, sort of nice pipeline API back then? So like the selection set with build things out?
0: There was. Okay. There was selection set with.
1: And so that, uh, I guess, to, just to clarify for our listeners, is applicative. So selection right. sets could be com- combined applicatively, but you also had this concept of fields which could not be combined applicatively.
0: Well, exactly. Well, now here's the thing. I would I would venture to guess that it would not be applicative because it wasn't applicatively combining it with its own type. You would build up a selection set. So you would say, here's a selection set, and I can say with field, with field, with field, and it tags it onto a selection set.
1: You're right. That would not be applicative.
0: Right. So the so the reason it did that was because I was trying to do, uh, I, I needed to make sure I had a unique way of querying for them. So in, in GraphQL, in a selection set, you can say, give me, you know, the avatar for user one, two, three. Um, But you can say, you can pass arguments to your fields in GraphQL selection sets. So you could say, well, I want the large thumbnail and I want the small thumbnail. Well, those would both be uh, thumbnail, the thumbnail field. And that comes back under a JSON key of thumbnail. But those both come back under the same JSON key. So I need a way to uniquely be able to get each field that you're requesting. And because of that, I would say, well, if I'm adding on a field that already exists, so I have thumbnail, and you're adding thumbnail again. So when you say with thumbnail small, and then with thumbnail large, now it's going to add thumbnail to it's going to add an alias the second time you add something so it's no longer unique. And so because of that implementation detail, when I was trying to figure out how to Really, in hindsight, I was trying to figure out how to obey these laws in building up a selection set where I could combine things, where I could uh, do map two. And I knew that I wanted map two, I guess, because I knew that I could do nice things with JSON decoders. And so that was an obvious parallel. But I didn't. Yeah. So in hindsight, that's really what I was trying to do, was trying to figure out how to obey those laws.
1: Interesting. It sounds like you came at it more from a developer experience perspective, but somehow that brought you exactly in line with some of these classic category theory constructs.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And in hindsight, that is really, really cool that that was just, uh, I, wrote, I wrote a blog post about, I think it's called how, how Elm guides you towards simplicity and how mm. I essentially had to have a deterministic way to uniquely hash these fields when I added them in, and that made it so it was order independent. So you can add, you know, you can have a selection set where you add a thumbnail, and then you can add another thumbnail later, and it doesn't care because it's already uniquely created a field alias, so it's never going to collide.
1: That's that's really cool, and it goes back to sort of that one property we discussed earlier that applicatives tend to be order independent.
0: Right.
1: With little asterisk, uh, there are some. <laughs> edge cases like parsers. I,
2: I, feel, I feel like there's a lot of asterisks <laughs> around those laws. Not, not the laws, but the, the functions and how you... Right,
1: right. Um, because order independent is not part of the laws, or at least not order independent in the way that we we think of it. I think there are laws around things like commutativity, which effectively mean order independence in a certain strict uh, sense of the term. But yes, for in general, it's, it's easy to think of applicatives as being... Order independent, and that's exactly the behavior you wanted.
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and things just um, bloomed at that point. It just felt like the the whole library before that it it became so much nicer to work with. And now, so there used to be this concept of a fragment, uh, of a fragment selection set. So so GraphQL has concepts of a fragment, and you could like build these fragment selection sets. And I don't even remember exactly how you did that it is the kind of thing that it was like you had to build up a fragment and then explicitly combine it with it and it would deduplicate these things and it it was a very difficult problem because how do you combine two selection sets when you've already sort of built up the decoder that's expecting to be querying for the the json that comes back from graphql but now you you've already sort of built up this decoder now you add some some more things to the selection set, but now you need to change the way you're querying for that data. So it's very messy. So suddenly, the whole concept of a fragment went away and you could just say, well, all you've got is a selection set. There's no such thing as a field, there's no such thing as fragments. You've got a selection set which can be empty, can be a single field, or it can be a collection of fields. And suddenly, it became so much simpler to work with and the a fragment just becomes Expressed as a selection set.
2: So, so I wonder what questions you could have asked yourself to find, to come to the same conclusion
0: earlier. Mm. Like, w- yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, like what would have made me realize these things? I mean, looking back on it now, I guess if I had some more knowledge of these category theory ideas in a way that I could understand for how do I help users solve problems. And that that might have pushed me sooner to kind of find ways to to follow these laws. That said, there were also certain technical things that I, I didn't have those insights of how do I make it deterministic, that it's always it doesn't matter what order you combine things in. But maybe that's maybe that's a takeaway, is just if you're having trouble combining things, figure out how to make it order independent. And if I had If I had just said, okay, I'm sure I can find a way to do this and focused on that, maybe I would have gotten there sooner.
1: I think it's interesting. You mentioned you wrote a blog post about how Elm guides you towards simplicity. And you asked a question at the beginning of this episode where you said, if we didn't have these category concepts and we just started with Elm, would we sort of independently rediscover them? Uh, Would they sort of always emerge? And I think with the answer you just gave here, you're saying yes.
0: That's my intuition. Now, that said, in a way, I had a blueprint. I had this obvious point of comparison, right? Because a GraphQL selection set is kind of like, you know, it's, it's sort of a JSON decoder on steroids. It's like a, a super powered JSON decoder. So there's an obvious API to try to match and say, hmm, JSON decoders can map to, JSON decoders can succeed. Wouldn't that be nice if, if I could do that? So it's hard to say what the API would have been if it wasn't for the existing example of JSON decoders. But I, I do imagine that a lot of the same patterns would have emerged. I mean, I guess in some
2: way, this is what happened at some point in the history of computer science, right? Anyway, right. So right. us being here talking about this
0: is proof that this is the way it would have gone? <laughs> Potentially? I think the biggest insight was when I realized that a con the concept of a field and a selection set could be the same and that the thing I needed to be able to implement that was to not care about order and uh, and when I just sort of stubbornly focused on that and said there's got to be a way I'm, I'm gonna try to find out a way to do that and I'm going to explore every option for a while I was exploring do I need to sort of hold some context of what what um, Fields have been queried and lazily build up the decoders. And can I even do that? And but uh, eventually, I just kind of held with that goal, and and it took me there. What about Yurun? What about um, Elm Review? Are there any places you think you could have sped up the way you developed certain parts of that API if you'd had these patterns in mind? Probably a few. Uh, I know that I, I have something called a
2: context creator, uh, which is. Basically, an applicative, I think. Yeah, it's an applicative because you you start with some uh, with a function, and you say, "I want this, I want that, I want this," and then something to construct it, to 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 combine all those information. Uh, I remember that was a bit tricky to implement, and I'm not even sure that it turned out exactly how I wanted it to be. <laughs> but yeah, the that would have been helpful at least. And then internally. Uh, I'm pretty sure I've implemented plenty of category theory things that are just not exposed, but that would have been helpful for me.
1: It's quite easy to even sort of accidentally implement these things, right? Because there's such useful types of functions, it's there's almost like a gravity pull towards those sort of mm. optimal points. Yeah. Um, so the odds of your implementing a map if you didn't know what map was are pretty high.
2: Yeah. It's, it's also because we have, we don't have that many ways of building things. I mean, we don't have mutation, so that reduces a lot of what we can do. That's true. Um, we don't have for loops. So yeah. How do you map things from lists? Well, yeah, you're going to reinvent mapping at some point.
0: Yeah. It would be cool to maybe, maybe that would be like a good write-up or something is exploring. Which of these patterns do do APIs that we've built inadvertently implement? (laughs) I'm sorry I invented applicatives again.
1: (laughs) That's a great commit message right there.
0: (laughs) Whoops, I created a monad.
1: (laughs) Is this like uh, the phenomenon of like things becoming crab-like in the natural world a lot?
0: I'm not familiar with this one. i
2: I have been uh become familiar with that one recently and i've been i keep hearing about it ever since <laughs> it, it, basically the idea that uh all animal species tend to evolve into something that very much looks like a crab so basically a, a crab is like a kind of a perfect being in a way an optimal being and everything just
0: gravitates towards that is is a corollary that all programs will eventually be migrated over to rest <laughs> <laughs> very probable <laughs> it's all making sense now all right <laughs> they, they chose their logo well at least <laughs> i i really like that idea of getting to the basics and uh trying to to derive these things by by solving a real problem. Are there any references for these more formal things? Do you sort of do what we all do and click a bunch of links and have a thousand tabs open in your browser <laughs> to learn about these things?
1: And I've written a few articles uh, digging into that. Uh, I've written one on uh, two perspectives on map functions. So sort of two mental models that I hold. I've written one about Elm's universal pattern. We use that as an inspiration for a previous episode. So those are all, I think, more practical uh, entryways into these concepts. Uh, I also made one on what happens when you run out of map functions, which is digging into what uh, applicative is uh, in a very kind of concrete use case. So those are all, I think, useful articles uh, for getting some understanding of what these things do um, in a very practical and in this case, Elm centered uh, environment.
0: Yeah, yeah. We'll link to all those. Those are great resources. Awesome. And and uh, where can people follow you and learn more? And and any other links you want to share?
1: Uh, yeah. So they can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Joel Ken, uh, J O E L Q U E N, and uh, I publish a lot of articles on the Thoughtbot blog. Uh, so that's uh, Thoughtbot, T H O U G H B O T. I think i spelled that right uh slash blog and then if you want to find mine specifically slash authors slash joel dash kenville it might be better to have an actual link
2: then
0: yes we will add that <laughs> yeah, look, look at the show notes for the link great uh-huh. well thanks again joel for coming on a pleasure as always thank you
1: great to talk with you all again
0: and Yaron. until next time and until next time